Welcome to the 10th episode of Probably Polly. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I research, write, and speak about sexual ethics in general and non-monogamous ethics in particular. I have been a practicing member of the polyamorous community for nearly 10 years. I feel like there's supposed to be something else here, but there's not. (laughs) I am Sarah Lucas. I um, have been practicing poly for about a year and a half. I'm a local or student at a local university studying consensual non-monogamy and child-rearing. And I'm Mandy Conant. I am the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend, and I have been practicing polyamory for about 17 years now. Was it two episodes ago? We talked about doing an episode on the problems with heteronormativity and just generally terrible behavior in popular kids' movies, the kind of kids' movies we grew up with, especially Disney. Mm -hmm. And I said I didn't want to do that because I felt like it had been done a lot. But I started to think about it, and I thought that we could do it in a different way, slightly more scholarly and then also kind of backwards. I got this article that I had come across, which is part of what made me change my mind, about a 2009 study that was published in Gender and Society called Heteromantic Love and Heterosexiness in Children's G-Rated Films. By the way, I love the word heterosexiness. Yes. Heterosexiness. <laughs> it's a wonderful term. Heterosexiness. <laughs> the way you say it. As opposed to homosexiness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I love okay. that you can now label sexiness right. types. It's really fascinating. Yes. There's bisexiness. <laughs> There's all kind of stuff. So this article was written by Karen A. Martin and Emily Kaziak. K-A-Z-Y-A-K. Basically what they did was they looked through the highest grossing films of the last 10 years for children, for G-rated films, uh, assuming that G-rated films are primarily marketed to children, and then tried to answer questions about how romantic love is represented in those films. And then obviously you can tell by the title that, of course, those are all heteroromantic love types. And then also they found a second type of romantic interest that they labeled heterosexiness, which was distinct from heteroromantic love. When you want to indicate that someone has heterosexiness, the people, men specifically, will look at that person and sort of sigh or make like a drooling face or, you know, otherwise sort of indicate like that person's hot, but it isn't really a consistent or long-lasting interest and it isn't life-changing. It's usually considered very unimportant and is often played up for laughs, like someone tripping over themselves or looking at a at a pretty girl or something like this. Okay. And they, but they represent it fascinatingly as like they're those are almost they're never overlapping. Interesting. Right. Like you never see characters who will eventually be in hetero romantic love displaying heterosexiness right. sorts of. The word that or the, the the time that comes to mind for me is like in Aladdin when all the ladies like swoon over Aladdin when he's going through this the town or the you know the city. And they're all just, oh, Aladdin. Or that's the female to male right. one for sure, yeah. I was thinking right. of Lumiere right. and the... Oh, yeah, yeah, and Beauty and the, the Beast. Feather Duster. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and, of course, Aladdin, the other direction at the very beginning when he's running from the police and he ends up in the, I mean, ostensibly the harem. Yes. And he does a gesture of interest in the women there right. and then jumps out of a window. Yes. Uh, they push him out of a window because he's uninteresting to them. Mm-hmm. But that even though he does show interest in Jasmine, obviously it's sort of, it's different. Like when he, mm-hmm. when he looks at her, it's not just like a sigh, it's not played for laughs. The music changes substantially, right? The music swells and shows a sort of life-changing major moment. Mm-hmm. Ah, the one. Goodness. <laughs> right, right. Ah, it's ingrained so deep yes. in us. 
So the movies that were used in this study are produced by three different production companies, Disney, Castle Rock, I put Pixar in with Disney, and DreamWorks, oh, Nickelodeon 4. The movies are in descending year order, Chicken Little, The Polar Express, Finding Nemo, The Santa Claus 2, Monsters, Inc., The Princess Diaries, Chicken Run, Run, sorry, Chicken Run, Tarzan, Toy Story 2, A Bug's Life, Mulan, The Rugrats Movie, 101 Dalmatians, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Toy Story, the original, Pocahontas, The Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid. So the list goes from 1997 to 2005. The upshots going through here that might be important to us, quote, we looked at the movies themselves rather than the children's reception of them because of the difficulty of research with young children generally, especially around issues Mm -hmm. of sexuality, which we've talked about before. Right. It's difficult to do sexual studies, especially on children, uh, which is a continuing problem for the polyamorous community to get sort of validation that we're not damaging to children. So this is definitely a kind of thing where we look at, they look at the movies and go, well, what do we think they're getting out of it? instead of being able to ask the kids what they're getting out of it. So the the other thing, and I don't know how many of you remember this, but I remember watching Fern Gully every day for two years. I love Fern Gully. I would come home Did and you watch really? that movie. Fern Gully is the and, shit. <laughs> yeah, but but I did the, I didn't I didn't do it that much for many movies, but for most movies I watched them repetitiously. Yeah. As a child. Okay. And that's pretty common for children yes. to have favorite movies they watch dozens of times. Same. As opposed to where I don't think as an adult there's any movie that I've watched more than like 15 times in over like 20 mm. years. Whereas I would watch a movie yeah. 15 times a over week. a year. You know, easily. Over a week. Yeah. <laughs> well, when the blockbuster was still a thing, I had like my seven favorite movies and I would just rent them in rotation. We'd go and go, which of these seven movies go. am I getting? One of the things that they said that they cited other articles that it looks like children actually comprehend more on each of the watchings than they did before, which is why children like seem mm-hmm. to like to watch them repetitiously. So part of why you might find watching the same movie boring is you're only going to get something out of it the first couple of times. And then after that, you're probably seeing everything that there is to see because you're getting all of the jokes and the references. Whereas children are actually analyzing new layers to the movie they didn't see before. So that in movies they have seen lots of times, they actually see even the hidden layers that we as adults go, it's okay that they have that weird sexual reference because no kid will get it. The kids get it on view like 10, 12, 14 Hmm. because they have so much time to find it. But do they get it to the level that we get it? You know what I, I mean? mean? I mean, I remember being eight and spending all my time trying to track down the sexual references in Disney movies. There was a penis in the art of the front of Little Mermaid, the case that I had. You know, I remember tracking that down and showing that to all my friends. It was like one of my prized possessions, how ridiculous it was that there was a <laughs> penis there. So, like, I understood that that was a sex <laughs> joke of some variety. And I remember uh, tracking down when Lion King came out. I was a little older at that point, like 13 or something, the... The scene where when um, Simba falls on a cliff and dust comes out, if you pause it, it spells sex in the air. Like, Yeah, I remember that. I remember tracking that sort of stuff down. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know that I ever understood what the references were until I was an adult. I, I'm trying to think of movies that I watched as an adult that I hadn't watched in like 10 years mm-hmm. and was like, oh, that's what that reference meant. But most of them, I understood it meant something special, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what it meant. The writers of this article say, quote, repeated viewings may also mean that jokes or innuendo intended for adults in these films become more visible and curious, if not more intelligible, 
to young children. Yeah, because I can definitely remember, like, my oldest was obsessed with Toy Story, the original Toy Story. He would watch it three times a day. Then, you know, of course, he got over it and didn't watch it for, like, eight years. And then when my second son came along, he sat down and watched Toy Story with him and was like, oh, my God, did he just say that? Like, and he got jokes that he didn't get eight years prior. So there's definitely, like, they don't, they definitely don't get the jokes on the level that we get them. That might actually be worse, right? Because, so, so a different study that they're quoting in this article says they found that 6 to 11-year-olds incorporate the sexual innuendo even if they don't understand it in their day-to-day social interactions. Really? Now that's fascinating. So that, the kids start dressing like that or doing things like they see a girl and they go, ooh, like when she comes by, even though they don't know what it is. So they start replicating the damaging behaviors that they're viewing without even understanding them. That makes sense. Like, that's, right. to me, worse than understanding Which is just them. like a child who says the F word. I mean, my son, he has said asshole when I have said it. He's just repeated it, and I was like, no, don't do that. Yeah, I remember the one and only time in my entire life I used a, a racial slur when I was young. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't even understand what racial slurs were. I just knew that this person had made me really mad and that for some reason saying it to this type of person was really bad. I learned very quickly and was very ashamed after that. But I, I, you know, like, it's amazing that I had that available to me as a method of social harm without being able to understand it. And I invoked, you know, hundreds of years of painful traditions that I didn't even realize I was participating in. How old were you? Oh, God. It was like sixth grade, I hate to say. So, and I I skipped a year, so I mean. Of course you did. What's that, (laughs) ten? Oh, so that'd be like that'd be ten, right? You go, I started when I was yeah, four, and then sixth ten. grades. Yeah, uh, ten, eleven. Ten. So I was like ten or eleven. So it, you know, I mean, yeah, I would have never. I know I did not have a clue what the word was. You know, after it was explained to me, I was like, man, I would never have said that if I understood what this word was. I just knew that it was hurtful. Interesting thing I just remembered about my childhood. I understood as a child that uh, when you fell in love, you got married, you got pregnant, right? But it didn't always happen in that order. Sometimes you fell in love, you got pregnant. So when I had the Birds and the Bees talk, the reason I had it is I had written a story for my friend for her birthday. We all wrote stories for each other. And at the end of the story, I said that we had gone out on a date with our two crushes and I almost got pregnant. And that's how I got the Birds and the Bees talk. So at eight years old, I understood this thing that I didn't understand and used it in an inappropriate context. And mm-hmm. because of the, the socialization that had been placed upon me and I... I wouldn't have said that had I known. And after that, I was like, oh, goodness, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> if had if somebody right. hadn't stopped you, you would have been married already. <laughs> Seriously, right? Sure. Or you would have thought you were married anyway. <laughs> this goes back to the article we, I said last time about how mothers check to see if they feel like their children are displaying the correct tendencies as they, they, they ask if they're doing play like I have a girlfriend. But of course, they're watching these movies and copying them with having no clue what the behaviors are. So of course, they're doing that. And they're doing it, they're performing it without even knowing what Mm -hmm. they're performing. So I mean, obviously, we said before, that's a terrible method, but obviously, it's a terrible method. But, but also just sort of the way that that you become the things that you say or do, right? You know, the way that's damaging. But it and not even to you, but also to other people. So like, you know, you don't you know, that you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But someone else might understand the concept of what you're doing, but not realize that you don't. And they take it as the actual right. thing. Yes. Right. And so 
you go, oh, everybody wants to get married and get pregnant, even little kids. Man, I feel really left out. I must be weird, mm -hmm. you know, but in fact, most people are just replicating behaviors they don't understand. Of course, not shockingly, the movie studied had low rates of non-white people. Where non-whites did exist, they were stereotypical and often played for laughs. The movies were played for laughs? In the movies. No, the the racial stereotypes. Oh. So, like, you're talking about Lumiere, he's French, right? And then, so he has, like, a French accent, and then he has, like, the the, the, the uh -huh. stereotypical, like, sexual behavior of chasing the French maid around. So think about the, the most sexual movie I've ever seen from Disney, easily, is Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like, that movie, oh, you're right. I watched that one, was like, this is a movie for kids, are you yeah. kidding me? And it's because Esmeralda's character is non-white. And she's definitely more sexual. Yeah, she's more sexual, but I thought that that was more the character, and they chose her race based on the history of the... I don't know, I could be totally wrong on that, but I I feel like her her character, they need, they need to display, like, this is someone who is ogled at because of the priest, of his reaction to show his inappropriateness with it. I, know, I could be wrong. Now, granted, that is actually the plot line of that movie, that's right, of the original book. But she is racially different she in is. the book as well. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, she's a uh, Romani. Okay. Um, I think in the movie they say gypsy, but often considered a racial slur, so depends Oh. On. I feel so, so naive because I thought gypsy was a lifestyle, not a racial... No, it actually comes from a racial slur. Okay. Right, it's a racial slur meaning Egyptian originally. Oh, makes sense. Okay, gypsy, Egyptian. I got it. Okay. There's a racial group that's actually descended from Indian origin, which is usually of slightly darker skin tone that has traveled throughout Europe for a very long time and for a while represented themselves as being Egyptian because Egyptians were thought of as being magical. Mm. So they did fortune telling and, and such that is, a, and they use what's called a traveler lifestyle which means they, they travel from place to place and don't live in a location so much as as a unit. The primary group in England is the Romneschel, who uh, are the, again, primarily racial demographic, but they also have Irish travelers, which are not related to the Rom genetically, but have a similar lifestyle and similar problems. So if you've ever seen the movie Snatch, for instance, the people in Snatch that have this, the, the, the like Brad Pitt's character with the way out there accent, those are um, Irish travelers. So, no, they're they're a racial a racial demographic, and and gypsy is a, a slang or racial slur for them. I'm happy, to and know. it's also used as a slur for other people now. Right. That's right. And so when people use it as a lifestyle, that's also really not great. It's sort yeah. of the same thing as if you were like, I'm a black soul, and you're you know, white. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. I know this right. now. <laughs> She'd say nomadic or troubadour or something along something along those lines as a or say to traveler. A I mean, traveler is the lifestyle. Yeah, right. right? That yeah. is commonly embodied by these a lot of these groups but you know so if you'd say I, I want to be a traveler I'm a traveling soul or something like that's fine but gypsy soul is not a not a great I thing to say and of course you know different groups think different things sorry sorry some of the, some of the people who are rom say you know like that's fine call me gypsy and some say no it's horrible it's a racial slur so um I think I have a shirt that I owned that said gypsy soul I'm not even kidding oh my god I feel terrible now okay <clears throat> A lot of people have that shirt. That's a very popular shirt. It's, like a, it's a song, is it not? Probably. I don't know. I've seen I've seen at least a few people with that. I think my my wife had that shirt at one point. <laughs> okay. So. You're not I'm alone. I'm not alone, but sure. don't use it anymore, Sarah. Okay. Got the message. And then, of course, they talk about how some people have been arguing and been... You see this on the internet. Both people are arguing for, but then also people will do, like, they'll, they'll write what they call headcanons or something that where they queer 
Disney plots. So they say like, oh, yes. well, oh, the you know, Lumiere is in love with, not Lumiere, um, who's the little henchman in Beauty and the Beast who looks like he's in love the with the Gaston? Wait, the, oh, no, no, oh, Gaston's um, henchman. LeFou, LeFou. Yeah. And then I think they actually did make him gay in the live action movie. They actually like made that really popular right. headcanon true in the live action movie. But yeah, absolutely. Like I, oh man, I loved those headcanons. There's one that I really, really love that uh, mashes two movies together. It is the Little Mermaid and the dude from Tre- uh, Treasure Planet, the the one that's cast in outer space. Whatever that dude's character is, that's my favorite headcanon. They're so sexy. Mm. <laughs> okay, that's a ship. I think that's a different than a. Uh, well, because headcanon means could be true inside the this plot. This could be true inside the universe. Okay. Right. <laughs> Do those characters Don't exist in the same bubble. universe? Is that actually? They it's are, not like they were very different storylines. Maybe Disney I'm wrong. Disney universe. Just yeah. Stop. Yeah, I think stop you just mean fantasy. You're, you're ruining you mean, it. I think you mean that's your favorite <laughs> that's my ship. Favorite ship. Yes. <laughs> I just. Love... We digress. Right. I digress. Okay. <laughs> so the main characteristic that they found for heteromantic love portrayals was that for it to look like heteroromantic love, it would be portrayed as, they use the words, magical, exceptional, and transformative. Yeah, yeah. if we refer to Aladdin, when he, you were talking about the, the music swelling when he first sees Jasmine, and he says, wow, and his eyes get bigger. I'm sure they dilate his pupils, because that sounds like a Disney thing to do. Then the, why can't I remember the monkey's name? I'm a little ashamed that I can't remember his name. Abu. Abu, yes, is trying to catch his gaze again. Like he goes in front of him and says hello and runs his hands across his face. Yeah, which is another thing they note that consistently in, especially Disney movies, but they also also note are more heteroromantic and heterosexy in general than all the non-Disney movies they looked at correlated together, was that friend relationships were treated as unimportant by comparison and even insignificant to mm-hmm. romantic relationships. So like both their, you know, Abu, his best friend, and then in The Lion King, Timon and Pumbaa are, are basically instantly abandoned upon oh, meeting right. somebody that he's interested in uh, romantically that they've barely met. Yeah, definitely secondary relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And then what? say the three words again, Michael. The three words that were... Magical exceptional and transformative have either of you ever had a monogamous relationships or relationship that was magical transformative or exceptional ironically i would say that at their best the rela- my, my best relationships were not those things that those things were the worst <laughs> the relationships that felt like they were that were horrible so okay my most recent relationship i felt it was magical and life-changing well not life-changing what were the words the three words you said i felt like it was those magical exceptional and transformative so if you you say not life-changing then it's not transformative probably but i mean they talk about things like transformative meaning like rechanging like your individual romance changes society right like in aladdin they overturn the law saying commoners cannot marry royalty in little mermaid they overturn the custom of all the ocean and the land that mermaids don't marry humans oh (laughs) they're not even allowed to talk to them yeah right yeah. you can't even talk to them and now the kingdoms are completely brought together like it solves the inner kingdom war right. between the merfolk and the the land people 
they definitely mean a lot of this stuff way more literally. Like magical here, they mean things like transform a frog into a Flying prince. carpet. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the love itself is magic. Save your life, right? And Little Mermaid, if he yeah. loves you and kisses you, your life is literally oh, saved. Oh, you get legs. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then no. <laughs> I've definitely never gotten legs from a relationship. <laughs> Particularly her legs. Goodness, I'd like that. Well, and of course... Even as children, we understand that those are metaphorical for what we should be expecting out of romance. Like, no one, like, even as a child, I didn't expect to, like, literally get magic powers from, from dating someone. But I did see that as a sort of metaphor for the way I would, I would feel or be changed or, right. you know, what I could accomplish. The sort of love conquers all idea. I'd be curious to know how many little girls did kiss frogs. Oh, 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 oh. That would be great. I would love to collect that data. That'd be awesome. <laughs> like, I know people Please, who have said that. Please, if you've actually kissed a frog, I would love to hear from I you. I haven't. Yes, yes. Let's let's hear from people who have done that. I, I remember. Oh, who do I remember? Anyway, I've had friends who are like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. Yeah, I just, no judgment. Yes. Yes. But, we would just know. like to know. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because I'm sure. I'm sure there have been. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there were bunches. Yeah, I mean, it seems likely. <laughs> So in their conclusion section, they also note that all of the romance in the movie in the, in the movies looked at was constructed between gendered bodies. Um, meaning male and female. Oh, and there was a okay. great distinction, I'm sure, between male and female. Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah. I see. Quote, and in which the sexiness of feminine characters is subjected to the gaze of masculine characters. Yeah. I mean, usually the value that the girl provides is by being attractive, physically. I guess in The Little Mermaid, there's some reciprocation of the attractiveness, like as far as like seeing the man as the sexy instead of everyone seeing the woman as the sexy. Well, and that was the movie that even as a kid, I saw the other direction, which I thought was weird, which was that I was like, all right, so Aria pulled up on this boat. She looked at this people. She was like, that dude's hot. I'm going to marry him. (laughs) You know, the only reason she got to save him is because she was kind of stalking him to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she... Oh, (laughs) Yeah, so I gotta say, that was the one movie where I would definitely call that sort of the other direction for her, which is she knew nothing about him, nothing good about him, and you just that he was cute. That was her takeaway. If you break all this down, she's really kind of a creeper. I mean, even as a very young child, I was like, man, really? Like, that's, this is a terrible... But I think it's interesting that I noticed how unhealthy that was... And it wasn't until later that I noticed the other movies, where in all the other movies, that's what the guy does. Uh, And that's obviously not great. But I only Mm -hmm. noticed it when it was aimed at me. So, like, as a guy going, oh, the cute girl only likes him because he's super (laughs) hot and knows nothing about him, that's terrifying. That in and of itself is interesting because I didn't notice it at all for like as a woman as a young child I didn't notice that this was being placed upon me but you noticed and it's because all of these different plot lines and ideas that were the same like I got that that was what I was supposed to do I was supposed Mm -hmm. to be pretty that was my role whereas you were like I'm supposed to be dynamic that's my role and so when it when the roles are swapped, you noticed it. It was out of place, yeah. Exactly. I had an opportunity to notice it because it felt different. I was exactly. like, this is different than my expectation of how it ought to go. Yeah. And this goes back mm-hmm. to those sort of the those scripts that we get taught as young people that we internalize and then have to spend the rest of our life dismantling back to a healthy, functional state of human being. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the other really toxic messages that are built into this? So one of them is that nothing else is important next to romantic love, which is fundamentally apparently based on some form of sexual attraction. So they will abandon their parents. They will abandon their parents' guidance. Their friendships. They will abandon civilization. They will abandon anything and pay any price. They will die. They will sacrifice. Their species. Mm-hmm. 
and also that if your love is quote true whatever that means Mm -hmm. it will fix all those problems Mm -hmm. it will overcome all yeah. It will actually be the right choice. That abandoning, like, the, the the wisdom of your emotional heart is stronger than your best guidance from your parents. And that eventually everyone else in your life will see how important your love is, and they will all be okay with it by the end of the movie. Does that give either of you the creeps? It's a little mind-blowing that that is what we were raised with, to believe that this these emotions, this NRE, that being turned on by somebody can change everything and make everything wonderful and better and your whole life amazing yeah like it honestly it gives me the creeps like when i think about it just like which is why people hate nre because it turns them into disney princesses except for it doesn't work out and things are horrible and you're miserable afterwards and you made terrible choices that you can't take back right and i I think i think disney also makes that worse though because you're not only are you getting the emotional cocktail but you have an entire lifetime of indoctrination that says at some level that you can and should go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you don't, you feel like you're failing at, at like, love. Right. Right. And extent. if it doesn't work out that way, as much logic as you have, there's still this emotional part of you, part, emotional part of me, that, like, wants that little girl dream to still happen because it was ingrained so deep mm-hmm. in me. Yet every relationship is going to fall short. And so, like you said, it's like I feel like I'm failing in love. And I think that many people feel that as well. Like, they are not doing right and so they keep chasing and then they do the serial monogamy because this one wasn't good enough well that's all right the next one will be my fairy tale pr- prince charming princess mm-hmm. gorgeous you know oh yeah and that's what that's what you know identifying females strive for in life is their prince and their castle and their little bluebirds and their little mice that clean their house and that's you know that's the the dream and unfortunately it's not and you know what? It, what kills me is like the amount of people that have probably lost everything they've worked for in life chasing that dream because, like you said, it yes. teaches us to give up everything, and that mm-hmm. it everything's yeah. going to work out if you just give up everything else in life to be with this person. And then, of course, it's not going to work out because that's stupid, <laughs> and right. you've lost yeah. everything then. And it has scripts built in, like, don't question. Right. right? So Just you, do it. If yes. You have to believe for it to work. Oh, yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. if you if you question it, if you don't believe, <laughs> that will fail. And if it doesn't work, it's because you didn't believe hard enough. Or right. you didn't live up to something. Or you weren't good enough. You need to be better. And when you are better, your prince will come, your mm-hmm. princess will come, and then you'll believe and it will work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do we tie everything we just discussed back into polyamory? How does this all, like, affect the way that we poly, and how can we use it positively, or, or I guess maybe positively? Could we? I feel like all relationship advice is relevant to all relationships. Here, here. That if you are going to understand where you have expectations that are unrealistic, of yourself, of other people, and where those expectations come from, this is the sea we all swim in. We all grew up with these movies. We all grew up with this message. Regardless of where we've gone in our journey since, no one that I know has successfully deprogrammed all of this out of their brain. Mm -hmm. Like you said, Sarah, we still strive for that. Right. Yeah, which is just a little frustrating. (laughs) When the NRE comes, it's like, yes, I found it. But like any problem, you have to know it exists and you have to understand where it comes from to be able to overcome it. 
and to be able to remind yourself that you should and can overcome it so that when the NRE ramps up and you think, oh, I should throw everything else under the bus for this new amazing relationship, you can be like, wait, those are scripts that I've learned that are not good for me, that are not accurate, and that are not universal. You know, there are lots of similar stories from other cultural groups, like I'm reading an ancient Chinese tale right now, where when the person, you know, starts to feel those emotions, they're like, oh, God, no, it's going to destroy me and under, you know, destroy my ability to make good decisions, you know, that it might not be desirable, that that's not a universal belief. And, it, you know, not that it's not desirable, it's pleasurable, but mm-hmm. treating it like it's magical, like it's like it affects the actual world around you in a mystically compelling way is mystically compelling is just crazy. Yeah, it's a sort of group delusion. And the other thing that that ties into, of course, is that we always have to be very aware of the heteronormative structure as polyamorous people. And this is specifically fascinating because and this is what the authors talk about in the end during the conclusion and that, you know, the line about magical, powerful, transformative is that despite heteroromantic love being taken as the norm it also somehow claims that your experience of it will be extraordinary mm-hmm. and that everybody will experience that extraordinary experience. But the way that it's set up, you assume that most people won't get it, but that you will, was at least my memory of the setting. Only Aladdin and Jasmine had magical love in that whole movie. Nobody mm-hmm. else succeeded at anything that even remotely looked like that. Because well, their love is special. Right. It's transformative. It transforms all of us. And it's linked into the idea of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is the belief that everybody could be Bill Gates mm-hmm. and that every individual thinks that they will be the next Bill Gates and that if you fail to be that, it's somehow on you. Because well, we're taught we can be anything we want to be. Right. right. And, and that's the the thing that for polyamorous people I think is really important is that they note about in this article again that the exceptionalness is almost taken for granted as being the reason for the default heteronormative uh, mononormative love really in these movies Mm -hmm. is taken as being something you automatically want because look at how magical transformative amazing it is when it's done right to the point that when you're like, I want to not do that, people go, that's insane. Mm-hmm. And that's something that everybody who's polyamorous has had to overcome, but also that you can, I mean, how would you, how would you even start fitting these concepts into a polyamorous relationship and, and have them work? And what kind of friction does it cause? And what kind of friction does it cause for the individual people listening? And, you know, I mean, I almost, I almost moved to Mexico when I was, I don't know, 18 to become like a runaway drug dealer with a girl that I was into. Like, <laughs> Oh, oh, that is my favorite story you've ever told me about yourself. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. You know, and it, it made so much sense to me at the time. I was like, of course, because <laughs> of course, I'm going to see work. her and uh, because you were in we're love. make our own fortune oh in the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And it's love will be pay great. the bills. I love it. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that story. Go on it's with like your the point. low point of my entire life, but um, I'm and glad we appreciate you get your low point. Significant enjoyment <laughs> yes. out of it. At least it's it's laughable, right? <laughs> it is. It is laughable, but it you know it made so much sense, and it's so weird that you know you can read 
my journals from that time frame, both that that and the relationship directly before that that I was interested in. And in both cases, there are people that I realistically barely knew had only sort of were on my periphery in some way, and I'm writing about how, uh, you know, we're obviously soulmates destined to overcome <laughs> everything and be together. And I'm going, you know, reading it now, like, my, you know, my t- toes curl. It's just the worst thing <laughs> in the entire world. Uh, I actually have this entire article that I wrote about how everybody who wasn't with their soulmate was a failure. Wow. Premised on... You did? Judge did, McJudgerson? When I was like 18. <laughs> well, and it was premised on... Wait, how old were you? Like 18, 19. <laughs> and I was, it was premised on all of the like the things that I took for granted as having to be true, right? So like if God exists and God is kind and there is monogamy and therefore there's one right person for you, then if you're not with the right person, since God wouldn't set you up to fail, you like lost faith, jumped the gun, you know, didn't hold out for the right person, read the signs wrong. And then when that person came along later, you weren't brave enough to leave the person you were with to be with them, to recognize that this was actually your right soulmate. Because if you believe in all those premises, then that has to follow naturally. Right. Right. It doesn't make sense that a kind God would set most people up for romantic failure when romance was the only important thing in your life. I never connected those two before. I would I would love to hear the timeline of of between that Michael and this Michael. Yes, the, the ditto. Changes. I'd like to read that article. Yes. Sarah, you asked how this has to polyamory. And I think that we have to be able to shed these societal narratives that we've been taught in mm-hmm. able to to have a healthy functioning relationship all these expectations that we've been taught via animated movies growing up we place those on our relationships and when we do that nothing is ever going to work you can't have a good relationship if you don't question these scripts because they are awful. Right. All right. We've avoided going into supreme detail in these movies, but we still didn't manage to successfully do what I wanted to do. So we'll, we'll take the last <laughs> short time to do the, the back half of this, which is I wanted people to suggest or us to suggest movies and analyze them backwards. So movies that we felt didn't have these things. You know, I have this two-year-old and he's coming up on movie watching age and i don't want him to watch most of the horrifically bad movies that set me up for 20 years of embarrassing disturbing mononormative insane stalker psychotic behavior (laughs) and made me feel like a failure for not getting those things i really enjoy up oh um uh, i don't know up has that whole like she's the one my soulmate my life mate I don't know that that's it. It's not necessarily has that magical and exceptionalness. It's just like this is his his friend that he's. Well, no, maybe it does. <laughs> I think if you watched up and you didn't watch any of these other movies, it would probably be pretty safe. I think we read the probably. rest of that into it because I mean they they just basically have maybe. flashbacks and sadness, and he decides he doesn't want to live, I guess, in the world anymore without this person in it, and that is obviously a pretty monogamous right issue. I think Finding Nemo is probably a good example as well. Finding Nemo is there good. is a little bit of the love thing. Yeah, because I mean, he and Dory, like the Marlin and Dory, they have a love, but it never directly implies that it's romantic. No, I, I believe that it's friendship. I don't think it's a, a romantic I believe one. so, I think too. that's right. Yeah. Moana. Right. Moana's another good one. Moana, yeah. yes. 
All right, but so let's let's talk about sort of through what's not just like here's a list, but like so in Lilo and Stitch, right? We like the developed chosen family mm-hmm. story arc, valuing people rather than the relationship. I think um, I, I think that in many of the movies that we've discussed earlier, like Little Mermaid and such, it's more like placing value on what the relationship ought to be rather than just who the person is, and also actually sort of honoring the relationships that you do have in the order yes. that you have them. The older sister in Lilo and Stitch, whose name I cannot remember. Nani? So Nani has a guy that's a love interest that she's interested in. And it's pretty healthy that she has like a friendship for, that she Mm -hmm. has shared experiences and shared location with. And she puts that on the back burner to deal with her very important guardianship relationship with her sister. Numerous times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's still... And it still healthily develops in the background. It doesn't kill it, showcases that you can you can do the things you should be doing and then also develop. And that he's respectful of her relationship with her sister. He's supportive. That he doesn't respond. Yes. Yeah, that he doesn't respond by going, that's ridiculous, pay attention to me, I'm out. He responds to being like, yeah, that's your sister who you have to take care of because you're her guardian. Right. Like, And I think at one point in the movie, he like helps. He helps like the ruse or whatever's going on. Sure. But, and it's not just the main, it's, you know, it's the, the aliens too. Yeah. They become family of sort. And they, they add them to the family. It's all about chosen family. And it's not the, the romantic relationships are not the main focus in the movie. I think one of the reasons why um, Up is the only other movie that comes to mind, why I chose to offer that movie as uh, as one that goes against the norm here, is that, yes, the love story was a part of the first 10 minutes and we all cried, but the main focus of the movie is the friendship between the, the boy and the grandpa. Why can't I remember their names? Not the grandpa. He's not grandpa, but how that kind of a bond across age could be important to a person's development and to one's one's life and emotional stability and right in the other direction as well that it's important to the the older person to continue to be part of growth and life and other people's development yeah outside of again direct familial blood romantic child heterosexual based connections right yeah so choose Choose the people mm-hmm. that that you want to uh, be your family. Another movie I think um, I love Pixar. Inside Out is one that I think is great as well it to is... not have the romance in there. Inside Out is an amazing. It's it is a phenomenal movie. I love that movie. Like it really, honestly helped my youngest really understand feelings and memories and what to do with them and you know what not to do with them and how to process things. It was a, it is really a phenomenal movie. Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. I know people who hate it, but I we won't get into that right now in this podcast. But Nemo, though, like you brought up a really good one. I think Nemo is a great one because Marlin and Dory they gain this really great friendship throughout. And I just realized, as, as we're bringing this up again, it also challenges befriending people that have your same, like, uh, someone who with disabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, he creates this great bond with someone who has a major disability. They learn and they grow together. Right. And they both get something out of the relationship. Yeah. We had talked about Frozen as like a sideline one. Frozen's interesting because I think the final product of Frozen isn't so bad. I'm going to say that Frozen doesn't necessarily promote a whole lot of healthy emotional behavior. Not in general. Not in general. I wouldn't throw it up there with the others. Does it it not? 
No, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think she definitely has to like, work even for a Elsa. lot throughout the movie to right. get to where she is at the end of the movie. So I would say that it's more unhealthy than healthy as far as time-wise in the movie. That's what your, you know, that's what our kids are mostly going to deal with. I, I like to think that I can protect my kids from the messages out there, but I know from my own experience that you know, most of the things that I really wrestled with were things that nobody ever told me explicitly, not in my family yeah. anyway. Like, they are messages I absorbed from the ether. Like, that you're not supposed to have ugly emotions, per se, is something that nobody ever really told me, but that I definitely was aware of, that, you know, losing control of your emotions, getting angry, that sort of thing wasn't really acceptable. And the conceal don't feel plotline, that they were like, don't don't have your actual emotional response, have this fake emotional response, be the people other people mm-hmm. need you to be, and that how that doesn't work, right? That it showcases that it doesn't work. And they're really two different storylines, because and you know, in a yep. weird way, Disney got lucky with Frozen, right? Because as I think a lot of people know, the story was supposed to be that Elsa goes up and just goes off and is an ice witch and they stop her and have a romance and she's the bad guy and Adina Menzel with her let it go performance changed it all right right after they heard let it go they were like that's way too inspirational let's let's do something else with it but I did I did like that it was that they eventually settled on in the rewriting that the sisterly love is what saw, is what saved the kingdom. Yeah, I'll give it that for sure. I mean, the idea that there was an I love you on the I can't think of another movie where like an, the phrase I love you was expressed necessarily in a kid's film. Uh, I'm not thinking of very many movies at all right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I love that there is the phrase I love you was used in a non-sexual form. And I loved that. That was good. But but this thing is specifically about the article you're talking about where they're talking about that friendship love, non-romantic love is not magical, meaning it doesn't solve the problem with transformative magic and here a non-romantic relationship broke the curse oh, right so when they said that. love love will thaw and save and is magical and rejuvenative they didn't make it romantic she didn't find her one true love to save her she found her sister oh that gave me chills which like in Lilo and Stitch the friendship is the one their friendship is what transforms him from into, yeah yeah Okay, okay, yeah, I'll give... From a shitty little monster to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A pet yeah, you could deal it. with. Ah, I love that stitch. I will give Frozen some credit based on what you just said. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, it's definitely like if I had to put on a Disney movie in my house for a bunch of visiting kids, I wouldn't cringe if that was the one that I had to put on like I would with so many yeah. of the Disneys. I think, and I think what's nice is, you know, none of the movies that I think we are, well, I don't know when Lilo and Stitch came out, it probably just was not high grossing, but, you know, that there's, I feel like an ever-increasing number of movies, I mean, honestly, anything by Pixar is pretty, pretty safe in this, in this grouping, moving forward from Toy Story, so, like, not that obviously Mm -hmm. but even toy story like the the romance elements in toy stories are like implied and they're not when they're minimal minimal. they're not the main plot they're not what changes or drives the plot right right and that's yeah it's nice that pixar is creating an entire space for not heteronormative love stories for children i don't even know how heteronormative love stories became a thing for children because it's the furthest thing from their day-to-day sphere. I never thought about that. Because get them early. Because <laughs> because it needs to be ingrained in them early. It's just like religion. Yeah. It's like Sunday school. Hmm. You know, get them singing the songs. Yeah. Get them learning the verses. Yeah, but it's it's. I get that for religion. <laughs> like, I, I understand that. What were you looking to recruit for in heterosexuality? I was just thinking the same thing. 
It's to keep that societal norm. I, I wonder, though, like when Walt Disney, I mean, he was born in uh, 02, I think, like 1902. I right. I wonder, yeah. like, what kind of threats there were <laughs> to, like, society that were, like, sexual threats to society. I mean, the gay movement was obviously not a thing at the time. I don't know. Like, there are probably aren't numbers of how many people identified as homosexual at that time and what kind sure. of impact they had. I understand where Michael's coming from. Like, what was the, what was the goal in teaching them this young that this was the thing they were supposed to do? You know. Well, I mean specifically this insane version, right? So societies the world over have intentionally avoided this sort of specific romantic version because it is not good for the stability of society. Right? <laughs> the, yeah, you're right. The, the, this is not helpful and is not necessary for heteronormative reproductive structure. He he worked with what he yeah. had. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And he just nice to yeah, I think he just wanted to make feel-good stories is the weird thing. Yeah, I think you're probably right. right. Things that make you make you feel euphoric for a moment, take you out of your mon- normal life. I was going to say mundane, but that I think that that's a, a bit harsh. And give you something that was magical and grandiose to dream about. That's my point, though, is I just don't know who is sitting around going, of all of the possible stories I could tell this six-year-old, what's the most exciting one? Dating stories. Dating stories, yeah. Dating stories. That's a weird choice to me. I just realized what time it was, so we have to... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We have to go, and then I have to cut out half of this. (laughs) I'm sorry. All right, let's say goodbye, everybody. All right, thank you. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) If you have any favorite non-sexualizing movies... Is that something you say now? Yes, yes. (laughs) Comment, respond, message. Yes, and if you have any questions, anything that you would like us to address, please don't hesitate to ask any of us, and we will respond... I apologize. We will respond as timely as we can. We would love your feedback.